Hello and welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne today's western Germany that is over 2,000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. It can therefore be seen as kind of microcosm of European history. Here you can listen to the city grow, chronologically from the Romans to our present time. What will this episode be about? Cologne is an intermediate phase around the year 900. In the whole region of the former Frankish Middle Kingdom of Lothar, the question is going around which empire can protect it better. To which sub-kingdom of Charles the Great's former Frankish Empire do people feel more attached? The West Frankish Empire, which later became France? Or to the Eastern Frankish Empire, which later becomes the Holy Roman Empire or the medieval Kingdom of Germany? At the beginning of the 10th century, the nobility of the former Middle Kingdom simply say yes. Yes? Yes, they really do say yes, namely to both. In a short time, Cologne will be part of the West Frankish Empire. But then, it will also be part of the East Frankish Empire again. That sounds confusing? Oh dear, it is. Therefore, we should solve this here and now. But first to something else. I called the last episode Sancta Colonia, Holy Cologne. But really justified why Cologne has this title around the year 900, I have not really explained. Sorry, I was probably a bit lost because of the Christmas season at the time of the recording. Just as so-called internet historians who graduated from Google University turn up their noses at the term Holy Roman Empire, this term of the Holy Cologne certainly applied to Cologne in the understanding of the people at that time. The fact that Cologne called itself Holy did not mean that God personally stayed in the city or that angels hang everywhere in the streets, alleys and squares or even that milk and honey flowed here. There was indeed a lot flowing through the streets of Cologne, but that was uh, rather garbage and dirt. The historian and former professor of the University of Bonn and previously Cologne, Manfred Groten, has it in his book The German City in the Middle Ages with the attribute holy, I think, perfectly expressed. Therefore, here's a direct quote from his book from the chapter the early medieval bishop's city. Quote, Since the Carolingian period, the material city, more precisely the church and bishop's city, was also interpreted as an image of heavenly Jerusalem. Holy Cologne was understood as a sacred space set apart from the environment, built up by the remedies accumulated in the churches of the city. Such healing power was attributed to the relics of the saints. The ecclesiastical topography of Cologne was determined by the circle of churches that surrounded the walled city since late antiquity. The churches of the Holy Virgins, later St. Ursula, St. Gerion and St. Severin were part of the ancient heritage. End quote. So the church itself also saw cities as holy places, because especially here the density of holiness through church buildings and relics was high. At the same time, however, the clergy must have despaired of all the accompanying characteristics that came with the city. Filth, misery, crime, festivities, prostitution and or alcoholism. Not a few clerics will have wanted to recognize a new Babylon in the cities of the Middle Ages. The status that a city could be considered holy permanently changed the perception of the people in the city. I had often presented it in the episodes about Roman Cologne. The city, so ancient Cologne, served the surrounding countryside as a central place for the entire region, not vice versa, as it is often the case today that the city claims the surrounding area for itself, 
for example, as compensation areas for larger businesses and companies that would otherwise not find space in the city or workers moving to the suburbs for larger apartments or more affordable housing. No, the city served the surrounding countryside, as for example, as a marketplace. However, this is now slowly changing. The awareness of living in a central, condensed place that was considered holy or sacred ultimately led to a separate sense of identity among its inhabitants in the city. After all, people lived here behind the walls in a community in which the saints were close to God. Those peasants somewhere in Kappen or Pulheim outside of Cologne were not. A way of thinking that is still attributed to the people of Cologne today, I believe. The German word for the inhabitant of a city was later to become Bürgerin or Bürger. The word already contains the German Burg, which means castle, and in addition to its own status as a city dweller, is also intended to distinguish it from all the other people who do not live in a city. Only modern times will the concept of Bürger, or in English citizen, be extended to all people no matter where they live. But this mindset is important to understand the motivations and motives of people from that time. Nowadays, people would look rather strangely at someone if they said their city was holy. Well, with the exception of the still significant pilgrimage centers like Rome, Mecca or Jerusalem. But often there, it only applies to certain areas, places or buildings, and not to the whole city itself. So it was at this time that the feeling of city versus countryside emerged. A contrast that still characterizes our society today, no matter where you live. In political elections, for example, rural areas usually tend to go in a completely or slightly completely different direction politically than in a dense urban area, to put it very cautiously. Further, Professor Manfred Groten emphasizes in his book the importance of church building as an economic factor for the medieval world. We are, and I mean this absolutely object in an objective way, in a pre-industrial and mostly pre-capitalist time. Economic surpluses were rare, and if they were, they were only attainable in large cities or important market towns in early medieval Europe. Most people practiced subsistence farming, that is, they produced only for their own needs and for what they had to give to others as texts or duties. This was not only because people of that time were frugal or modest. It was simply almost impossible to make surpluses as a simple small farmer. Not enough land to grow crops, high birth rates, accompanied by high infant and maternal mortality, weather disasters, pests, plagues, wars, raids, greedy nobles and low life expectancy. All this just made it difficult for farmers to make cash. And farmers made the vast majority of 90% of the people of that time. To live in a city like Cologne, Paris or London in the beginning of the 10th century, that was the exception. In most regions of the early Middle Ages, there's hardly a pronounced economy based on the division of labor as intensified as there certainly was in Roman Cologne. What did that actually mean in concrete terms? If you needed butter, you didn't go to the supermarket like we do nowadays and just buy it. No, you spent hours making the butter yourself in your home. You needed a new chair then unfortunately there was no furniture store. You had to make the chair yourself with your modest skills, and so on and so forth. All of this, of course, drained your ability to use your time more efficiently. And don't get me wrong, there had been a, an economy based on the division of labor, but not at a large extent. The only exception was church building. It was the economic engine of the Middle Ages. Those who built churches attracted numerous craftsmen and skilled workers. This created demand for accommodation, housing, food, entertainment and much more. 
so much for the accusation that sometimes arises in science or the media that church building in the Middle Ages was counterproductive and useless. No, it led to the development of a society based on the vision of labor. It intensified it, especially in the cities where churches, monasteries and cathedrals were built. Church building was not the only reason, of course, but it was one of the main drivers of this development during this time. It is not surprising that one wanted to extend his holy status by further church foundations in Cologne. In the last episodes, you already talked about the fact that other churches were built or expanded into monasteries and foundations, such as St. Ursula or St. Cecilia. Other churches at this time are St. Maria Ablas and St. Johann Baptist, or in English, St. Mary Indulgence and St. John Baptist. St. Mary Indulgence was first mentioned in the year 927. It was built perhaps a few years earlier. Its name comes from the fact that indulgences were proclaimed here in this church on Palm Sunday. How exactly do you have to imagine this? Well, every Easter on Palm Sunday, a procession with the Archbishop of Cologne at its head went through the city. The starting point was, of course, the old cathedral, the predecessor building of today's Gothic cathedral. The destination was the church of St. Gerion, which at that time was still outside the city. One stop on the way back to the old cathedral from St. Gerion was this church of St. Mary Indulgence. Here, the forgiveness of sins was proclaimed by the archbishop. Quite practical, actually. See you next year. St. Mary Indulgence was a three-nave basilica that had a square tower on the west and was located in the northern suburb of Cologne called Niederich, near the church and monastery of St. Ursula. I will post a picture of it on social media but also in the companion post of this episode on my homepage thehistoryofcologne.com. Hardly anything is left of this church building. In the year 1808, like many other parish churches, this church was demolished during the French rule of Cologne during Napoleon. Only a former annex of the church remains and is nowadays used by the Russian Christian Orthodox community as St. Constantine and Helena Church. By the way, those two were really important for Cologne's history. If you forgot, well, you have to re-listen to the episode about Constantine the Great. Just saying. The other church, St. John Baptiste, is another parish church located near the monastery of St. Severin, then in a southern suburb right outside of Cologne's Roman city wall, called Oversburg or Ersbach. It's not important that you have to remember these names, because we will get to them in another episode pretty soon. St. John Baptiste is built about 20 years after St. Mary, approximately 948. As a basilica, it is located in today's Severin's Quarter, a little further north from the monastery of St. Severin towards the Roman city wall. St. John Baptiste still exists today. However, it was almost completely destroyed during the Second World War. The choir and tower were bombed to pieces, and only a part of the side aisle and central nave remained. It was rebuilt in the spirit of German post-war church construction in bricks in the 1960s. Nevertheless, today's church building is famous throughout Cologne, or rather its church tower. This 44-meter-high tower, tilted in 2004 by a whooping 77 centimeters toward the west, the reason for the tilt of the church tower was the construction of a new subway under the Severin Street, which was taking place at the same time. Supports were brought in to save the church tower, which was luckily successful. The Cologne Public Transport Company had to spend a million euros, like I think 1.1 million US dollars, to get straight. In the um, truest sense. When I was a member of the Cologne Schulenfeldstürch, the carnival procession of Cologne schoolchildren, I felt quite queasy every time we walked past it, but luckily the tower is straight again. I will try to find a picture of that 
tower when it was not, when it was tilted. And then I will put it on my homepage and sometime I will put it on social media, of course. So this was a supplement to the last episode about Sancta Colonia, the Holy Cologne. But how did the city of Cologne fare in the political sense, that is, on the larger level? The history of the Frankish Empire. Let's take a closer look at that. I must warn you first, I always try to avoid super-regional history as much as possible. This podcast is about Cologne and not about Germany or Europe or Western Europe or the Rhinelands. In this episode, however, this is somewhat necessary. Because the change that takes place in Central Europe from the early 10th century has long-term consequences for Cologne. And as soon as we have ticked that off, we can concentrate fully on the city of Cologne as such. For further development, however, we need the historical background now mentioned here. So let's get into it. Let's talk about the East Frankish Empire to which Cologne belonged in the year 900. In December 899, the last great Carolingian ruler died on the throne of the East Franks. The guy named Arnulf had successfully repelled a Viking attack in the year 891. So successfully that from that time on Cologne, but especially the land of the Saxons north and east of Cologne, which had been part of the Frankish Empire for more than 100 years now, could finally flourish. I bring up this reference not without reason, so you better remember this well for now. The Vikings were never to invade the territory of the East Frankish Empire again. Never. They concentrated now on the other regions, such as England. Likewise, Arnulf was able to hold Lotharingia, later known Lorraine, against the desires of the West Frankish king, the very region to which Cologne belonged. Lotharingia, or Lorraine, and oh, I cannot really pronounce that French word, was in the early Middle Ages quasi this whole form of Frankish Middle Kingdom, because it derived from the first Frankish ruler of this Middle Kingdom, who was named Lothar. And about that Middle Kingdom, we have talked about some episodes before. Only in more recent times, that is ours, it became the territory that today is known as Lorraine and is located only around the area of the today French city of Metz. Lorraine has thus shrunk territorially enormously in the course of its history as a concept. So much for that about the term Lotharingia or Lorraine. But well, Anulf held the rich duchy of Lotharingia with the cities of Cologne and Aachen still. The latter was important because Aachen was the site of Charles the Great's tomb and his most favorite place when he was still alive and was the emperor. An enormous gain in prestige for the East Frankish Empire to call Aachen part of their empire. Furthermore, Arnulf had not only driven out the Vikings, he had also banished the recent emerging danger of the Hungarians by concluding alliance treaties with them and even partly using them as mercenary in his army. This would later earn him the posthumous reproach of his contemporaries that he had made the Hungarian invasions of the East Frankish Empire possible in the first place, since the Hungarians knew exactly from then on how the Franks fought and where there was something to plunder. Also, Arnulf was able to hold northern Italy with its rich cities such as Milan. As the icing on the cake, he even received the Roman imperial crown from the Pope in Rome in the year 896. With an empire stretching now from the North Sea to Italy, he clearly outdid his West Frankish colleague. But in December 899, all the glitz and glamour came to an end. At the age of 50, Arnulf died after several strokes. Fortunately, he had a son. Only one son. So everything can continue in peace, joy and happiness, right? Because the empire doesn't have to be split again into several parts. I mean, the, the Frankish empire is already split up enough, right? Can we now 
continue in that sad peace, joy, and happiness? No wrong thinking. The son named Louis was only six years old. Not only did Louis probably prefer to play with wooden blocks instead of playing the Game of Thrones, he is also a seriously ill boy. Nevertheless, the nobility of the empire appointed him the new king of East Francia, probably so that they can rule in peace in their own duchies without the king interfering too much. But after only 11 years, in 911, Louis dies at just the age of 17 or 18. Fittingly and somewhat morbidly, he will go down in history for posterity as Louis the Child. During his reign, things had again deteriorated enormously for the people, for once again annual Hungarian invasions plagued the East Frankish Empire enormously. So, and before we continue here and lose ourselves further in East Frankish historiography, a short drink break for me. The year 9-11 will be extremely important. See you in a moment. I don't want to lose myself too much in Frankish imperial history. I hope you believe me that I have spared you as much as possible so far or that I have presented everything very simplified. But if you want to hear all this in more detail, you should listen to the podcast The History of the Germans. And no, this is not an advertisement, nor does even the creator of this podcast, The History of the Germans, even know that I'm just giving him a recommendation here, right now. I'm simply a personal fan and enjoy listening to his podcast. His portrayals of this time in German history are just great. Detailed, but at the same time easy to understand. But, okay, enough of the non-intentional pluck. We have arrived in the year of 9-11. 9-11 not only makes a great car by Porsche, but also a fateful year. For Louis' father, Emperor Arnulf, had only one son, but now this one son was also dead. He had not been married, thus he had not been able to produce a legitimate heir, let alone, if he had, had one. He would not have been of age for a long time, and how could he, when his father would have still been a child? Thus, the line of the Carolingians, who since Pepin the Short in 751, had provided the kings of the Frankish Empire and the successor kingdoms in the western, eastern and middle kingdom of the Franks had died out, at least in the East Frankish Empire. For in the Western Frankish Empire, again a Carolingian ruled as king of the West Franks. His name was Charles III or Charles the Simple. And don't ask me how the historians always came up with these epithets. With King Charles III of West Francia, the situation was somewhat clear, I believe. He was the next best and most senior Carolingian available, whether this really results in the logic that the West Frankish Empire should take over the territory of the East Frankish Empire is not known to me personally, but it had happened in the past several times, so wouldn't it have been the most logical step? But no, it should come quite differently. To do this, we must once again take a step back. Sorry, my train of thought got lost, I believe. But in the 11 years that Louis the Child had ruled, he had hardly done the following. Ruled. Louis was much too young and especially much too ill to establish his own effective rule. Thus, the central authority of the Carolingian kingship rapidly disintegrated during this period. It was now up to the regional and local rulers to solve the problems and challenges of the realm. This helped especially the already mentioned dukes from the last episode to rise to great power. There is one thing we should not forget. East Frankish Empire or not, the Franks were only one ethnic group in this multi-ethnic empire which was called East Francia. Likewise, the already known Alemanni lived here, or as they were called from now on in the early Middle Ages, the Swabians. 
Yes, exactly that part of today's southwestern Germany with excellent food like Spätzle Maultaschen and Zwiebelrostbraten, and known for their stinginess and neatness. Sorry for the stereotypes about Swabians, but yeah, this is what happened to the Alemanni. They had a name change to Swabians, and nowadays they produce Mercedes-Benz cars. Likewise, the Saxons lived in this empire in today's northern and eastern Germany. Incorporated into the Frankish Empire more than 100 years ago by Charles the Great, Charles the Great and his successors had left the Saxon elite who resided between the Ruhr, Elbe and Saale rivers in office after their successful conquest and Christianization. Since the end of the Viking invasions, Saxony had, as already mentioned, flourished and represented an important pillar of the East Frankish Empire. Also there are the Bavarians, also conquered during Charles the Great's reign in the late 8th century in the southeast of the empire. They suffered immensely. They were on the front line against the Hungarian invasions and fought bitterly against them. Thus, during this time, these so-called duchies were formed with their own leaders at the top. Since they were the real leaders of the empire and not the minor and always sick King Louis, the child, they were naturally fed up with the Carolingians. And so a Frankish duchy called Franconia had also emerged in the southern Rhineland and what is now the German state of Hessen, which however was not ruled by the Carolingians, but by another Frankish noble family. At the beginning of the 10th century, there were five duchies that were in development or coming of age. Franconia, Saxony, Lotharingia, or later known as Lorraine, Bavaria, and Swabia, formerly known as Alemannia. The frustration with the Carolingians as incompetent rulers, the massive invasion of the empire by Hungarians, remember they even came up to the Rhineland, and the newfound power of the dukes of Saxony, Franconia, and Bavaria encouraged the three latter to break a real taboo to do something that had never been done before. These three duchies of Saxony, Franconia and Bavaria, the most powerful of the East Frankish Empire, decided one year after the death of Louis the Child in 912 for a Frank named Conrad as the new king. But plot twist, this Conrad was a Frank, yes, but not one of the Carolingian dynasty. He was only exclamation marks, the Duke of Franconia, that Frankish part of the southern Rhineland and Hessen, what we had just described. This act in 912 broke a taboo in the Frankish world. The Carolingians as a dynasty had been chosen by God to lead the Frankish Empire in the eyes of many contemporaries. Had not Pepin the Short, father of Charles the Great, once had this right given to him by God himself, and documented by the papacy in Rome, but brutal pragmatism ended the dynasty of the Carolingians in the East Frankish Empire in 912 forever. But wait a minute, I just said Saxony, Bavaria and Franconia are the most powerful duchies of the East Frankish Empire? What about the Duchy of Lorraine, to which Cologne belonged, huh? Well, the Lorraine or Lotharingian nobles were not all enthusiastic about the abandonment of their East Frankish colleagues from the Carolingians. Here, still, the attachment to the Carolingians had probably been higher. All of Lorraine therefore decided without further ado against the election of Conrad as the new East Frankish king. But not only that, they even put themselves under the rule of King Charles III, the Carolingian ruler of West Francia. Thus, Cologne faced a prosperous future in the already developing medieval France, right? Hmm, but... Then why do I as a Cologne resident have a German accent and not a French one? Alors pourquoi je ne parle pas français? Um, I can't really speak French. I just looked that sentence up in my for my script, sorry. I can't really speak French, sorry. But yes, the question remains, why is Cologne nowadays not a French city? Well, we will get to that 
in a minute. How did the common people of Cologne react to this development? Well, for the common people, this was unlikely to have been important. The question is also whether the people of that time really had a sense that it made a difference whether you were East or West Frankish. People had other problems. Would the harvest be good this year? Will the tax burden stay the same? Will my child stay healthy? And above all, did you have a sense of belonging to an empire when your own world was pretty you know, restricted, local and a small one and you never left the place where you were been born? Difficult to say, yeah. Even how the then-acting Archbishop of Cologne, Hermann I, thought about the matter in 912 is not quite handed down, but let us put it that way. He will certainly not have been strongly against it, for as a powerful man and metropolitan of the Cologne church province, so the chief bishop over Cologne and over other bishoprics in the region, he will probably have supported this decision. The fact that he perhaps even agreed to join West Francia is shown only a few years later in the year 921 at a political event, but we will come to that. For we must briefly illuminate the further history of East and West Francia. In the East Frankish Empire, and remember, Cologne is now, at the moment, not part of it, King Conrad I was now the first non-Carolingian ruler. Unfortunately, I can hardly report anything about him, because the reign of Conrad I is generally considered to be one of the periods with the least sources of the entire Middle Ages, and that means something. Conrad, even though he was a Frank, simply had no royal blood. He had only come from the circle of dukes, just like his ducal colleagues, who had only appointed him king through their favor. The fact that Conrad nevertheless still tried to rule like a Carolingian king did not win him any friends in the other duchies of the realm. Don't worry, I will try to abbreviate here. The struggle between the duchies and Conrad as East Frankish king continued as before in the late Carolingian times under Carolingian rulers. The Hungarians also invaded the East Frankish Empire four times between 912 and 917. And King Conrad did nothing. Once again, the individual duchies of the East Frankish Empire were left to their own. As a result, Conrad's de facto exercise of royal power shrank back to his Franconian duchy. If that were not enough, from 916 onward he was plagued by disease that brought him ever closer to death, a not further known disease which he is supposed to have contracted by a wound on a campaign against the Bavarian duke. After only seven years of reign, Conrad died in 918. Supposedly, even on his deathbed, he said he just hadn't had any luck. An emo as a king. Look at that. Now the East Frankish kingship could have passed to Conrad's younger brother Eberhard, but this did not happen. According to the historical tradition, Conrad advised his younger brother on his deathbed to renounce the royal crown. He should pass on the royal dignity in favor of Duke Henry. The question is, Henry the Duke of Drumroll, Duke of Saxony. Boom, what a mic drop. And that's exactly what happened. Henry, or as we call him in German, Heinrich, the Duke of Saxony, became the new East Frankish king. Let me state the obvious. Barely a hundred years had passed when the pagan Saxons had bitterly resisted Frankish rule. Now they themselves ascended to the stage of history as heirs of the Carolingians in the East Frankish Empire. So quickly had the Saxons integrated themselves into the Frankish Empire that they now ruled a big chunk of that empire that once had subjugated them. I think that is a bittersweet irony of history. 
the exact backgrounds between the death of Conrad and the coronation of Henry I would go beyond any scope for this podcast, especially whether the transition really happened as smoothly as listed in the historical sources. But who wants to know more about it? Hey, remember there's this History of the Germans podcast that tells this very detailed. But this is how it happened. From the year 919, the Saxon noble family of the Ludolfings, or better known to public as Ottonians, ruled the East Frankish Empire for the next hundred years. During this time, the East Frankish Empire was slowly developed into what would be later known as the Holy Roman Empire. This Duke Henry of Saxony had himself elected as East Frankish king at an assembly of the East Frankish princes and nobles. Henry would, as already foreshadowed in a previous episode, during his 15-year reign as king, successfully repel the Hungarians, for example in the year 933. He had castles built, and with Eberhard, the Duke of Franconia and the brother of deceased King Conrad, Henry had a trusted corporation. Under Henry's rule, the East Frankish Empire even conquered what is now Eastern Germany, and even in 933, additionally, Bohemia was conquered. Bohemia, the historical term for the western half of today's Czech Republic, was to remain a significant part of the Holy Roman Empire until the year 1800. Even emperors were to rule the empire from here. But we will come to that way, way later. Henry had extended the borders of the East Frankish Empire far beyond the Rhine to the east, a dream that the Romans had not been able to fulfill for over 500 years, and Henry had come further than ever Charles the Great regarding going east. How did Henry manage that? The short answer, through good communication and publicly displayed or played modesty. Even the coronation of Henry as East Frankish king in the town of Fritzlar in 921, by the way, the place was also deliberately chosen since it was located in the Frankish-Saxon border area, the coronation itself was simply executed like a short administrative act. Henry renounced great pomp, ceremonies, or even the anointing by an archbishop at his coronation. It was rather short and sober. Why am I actually talking so much about Henry? Henry actually managed to end the numerous fightings between the other dukes from Bavaria, Swabia, Franconia, or even with him as being the king for the time being, and on the contrary, even bound them to his rule with friendship alliances. Henry saw himself as king, yes, but since he was still the Duke of Saxony himself, he still saw himself as first among equals. Unlike Charles the Great, Henry largely allowed the Duke's autonomy and freedom of action in their own realms, uh, their own duchies. Effectively, Henry still only ruled Saxony in total control. In the other duchies, he had to rely on his ducal colleagues. In this way, Henry managed to stabilize the empire internally and this, of course, also offered the opportunity to once again become active in foreign policy, such as conquering Bohemia. Also, Henry did not see the empire as his empire, which belonged to him alone as a person. Because up until then, an empire in early medieval understanding was bound to the person who ruled it. That's a little bit difficult to explain from today's perspective, but that was the understanding of this time. Thinking of the Eastern Frankish Empire, as we do nowadays sometimes in nationalistic terms, wasn't even an option. It was not the East Frankish Empire, it was Henry's Empire. It had been Louis the Child's Empire. We call it now the Eastern Frankish Empire. But that was not a perspective back then. But to avoid further stress among the dukes after his death, and so that the empire does not get split up even more, Henry decided to regard the East Frankish Empire as its own subject, indivisible 
and independent of him as a living ruler. And by that decision could only go to one heir. The indivisibility, however, was not an expression of royal power that Henry carried out, but probably was a result of a lot of pressure from the dukes who were no longer interested in several quarreling royal heirs with civil wars among themselves every time a king died. So that's the way Henry settled business in his own borders, and that would continue even after he was long gone and the Ottonians were long gone. But the question remains, since Cologne in that time was part of the West Frankish Empire, how was Henry's relationship to this empire in the West, the kingdom of West Francia, or early France? Well, let me take another sip because this episode is already very long. See you in a minute. Right at the beginning of his reign, Henry saw the treaty with West Francia, the later France, to which Cologne also belonged at that time, as I mentioned now a thousand times, I believe. If Henry wanted to fight Slavs and Hungarians in the east and southeast of his empire, and also had to consolidate his rule internally, Henry needed peace and quiet in the west at the border of his empire. So it came to a historical meeting on the Rhine River in the year 921. Yes, not at the Rhine or next to the Rhine, but on the Rhine. In the middle of it, with a boat which was anchored directly in the middle of the Rhine near Bonn, the city 30 kilometers south of Cologne. And, by the way, just a quick fact, well known to loyal listeners of this podcast, since Bonn was a former Roman military camp. This meeting and its presentation were intended to illustrate the equal status of the two kings. After all, they met directly on the border of both kingdoms, here in the middle of the river. Of course, the Archbishop of Cologne, Hermann I, was also present and acted as a companion, advisor and witness for the West Frankish king at this meeting. In that year, 921, the two kings agreed on the Treaty of Bonn. And um, what did the treaty contain? Well, simply put, friendship. Perhaps I should explain in brief, really, just in brief, what friendship meant. The Latin term amicitia, used at the time, did not mean that Charles III and Henry I would from now on regularly play football in the backyard or play PlayStation in the living room together. No friendship alliances that Henry made, whether with the king of the West Franks or other dukes within his realm, always meant recognizing the other's rule in all political and legal spheres. In the world of the Middle Ages, such ceremonies and meetings were extremely important. You must keep in mind that the nobles of that time were all largely in an illiterate environment, except for the priest. Hardly anyone could write, or maybe some traders. Such public display was extremely important. One example is still visible in most cultures nowadays, for example at weddings. At every wedding, you have usually a certain number of dedicated witnesses. And things like that date back to times like these where hardly anyone could read and write. So West and East Francia made a friendship deal. So all could have been well with that, couldn't it? Both kings in the East and West of the Frankish world recognized each other. Cologne would have had to remain with West Francia forever, becoming a French city, right? Well, unlike his dukes in his own realm, Henry did not take the friendship with Charles III so seriously. Because only one year later, in 922, when civil wars broke out again in the West Frankish Empire, a good Carolingian tradition, Henry took his chance. While the West Frankish Empire was drowning in internal struggles, its eastern neighbor was shamelessly exploiting this. So in the spring of 923, so just two years after the treaty was signed or made, 
Henry marched into the Duchy of Lotharingia or Lorraine, just like that, in order to annex it for his empire. And how did Cologne react to that? Well, here again the old Cologne characteristic showed itself, that we have already witnessed in the year 70 when there was the revolt of the Batavians. And that characteristic is be flexible in loyalty. When Henry's army invaded Lorraine and thus would eventually come to Cologne pretty soon, Cologne immediately recognized Henry's rule. The city changed sides without a drop of blood being spilled. The other parts of Lorraine quickly followed suit. And by 925, so just after two years of fighting, all the nobles of Lorraine had also made peace with Henry. Thus Lorraine, and remember, I'm talking about the historical Lorraine, which was way larger than today's Lorraine, became the fifth duchy of the East Frankish Empire besides Franconia, Bavaria, Swabia and Saxony, which from now on should go separate ways with the West Frankish Empire in the long term. Well, for the time being in any case. But let's not make that too complicated again here. But in this way, Cologne became a city in Germany in the long run. Phew. What a way to get there. So let's slowly come to an end of this episode. But before that, I want to take a breath. With the title of this episode, I have put forward a provocative thesis. It is based on a book title by the historian Hans Karl Schulze, once a professor at the University of Marburg in Hessen. The book may be somewhat old already, probably it is also in some places perhaps already scientifically outdated, which is completely natural after about almost 40 years. And also the author himself has unfortunately already passed away in 2013, but I still find the book very good to read. In my eyes, it describes vividly how the transition between Roman times and the Middle Ages in Europe took place. There is no founding date for Germany or the idea of Germany like the United States or countries that became independent from a former colonial power might have. Rather, in the long run, the really long run, first a new multi-ethnic identity developed from the East Frankish identity in the High Middle Ages, together with Germans, Flemings, Walloons, Czechs, Slovaks, Italians, Dutch, Slavs, Sorbs, Poles, French, Luxembourgers, Swiss and Düsseldorfers. The last one was a joke, I hope you got that. Just what we know as the Holy Roman Empire in public. Whereas the people of that time simply called this the Empire, or Reich in German. Only in the 19th century, or let's say in early modern times, beginning at 1500 around, would the term Germany really come to light. Let's leave it for today. This has been again a very, very long episode. If you listened yourself all the way through this, ah, thank you very much. That must mean you more or less like this podcast. Speaking of this podcast, when this episode airs, it will be the second anniversary of this show. And man, I can't thank you enough for everything that has happened ever since I started. First, I thought, would anyone even be interested in this topic at all? And then in the English language with a guy that has a German accent. But to be honest, why should I care? I do not mean to disrespect you at all, but the most important thing is that I have fun with it. This podcast is exactly the kind of podcast that I would want to listen to about the history of my home city. And if you can't enjoy your own podcast first, how in the heck are you supposed to get other people to enjoy it. I hope you know what I mean. So, thank you so much for listening and your support. Speaking of support, you can promote this podcast in many ways. First of all, be a friend, tell a friend. 
tell someone that you like this show and encourage her or him or as whatever you identify to listen to it. I am on many platforms like Instagram as History of Cologne Podcast. The same applies to Facebook and TikTok. On all of these accounts, I post stuff about, but also way beyond this podcast. I do small virtual guided city tours with my video camera, historical then and now photography, and of course, everyday life in today's Cologne. I would be honored to meet you there. And of course, you can always send me a DM and I'll get back to you. And on my homepage, thehistoryofcologne.com, I post background posts to each episode and an interactive city map shows you where places that get mentioned here in my podcast are in today's city layout. Last but not least, already thank you to the existing supporters. For example, my Patreons that donate money, I never thought that someone would donate money for this show, to keep this podcast running. I am really so grateful for you guys that you do this, because I would have never expected that, and I have long struggled with it if I should really ask for money for this show. But, but you guys taught me it was the right decision to do so, because there are costs that have to be covered, and you contribute a big part so that I don't get bankrupt about my ever-increasing hobby that gets more and more expensive as we speak because I always put more and more money into it. Well, things I do for love. You can find all these links to my social media platforms, homepage, and other interesting links in the show notes of this episode. In the next episode, the Episcopal rule in Cologne will reach its climax so far. Cologne is now back in the East Frankish Empire, the former kingdom of Lothar, the Lotharingia or Lorraine, is now incorporated into it and is now virtually demoted from a kingdom, former kingdom, to now the Duchy of Lorraine. Nevertheless, the title holder of the Duke of Lorraine was an important and powerful ruler in the East Frankish Empire. Therefore, as an East Frankish or German king, you can only put someone you trust in this position. For the middle of the 10th century in Cologne, this someone should be a man named Bruno, brother of the East Frankish king Otto I, son of Henry. But not only that, Bruno should not only become Duke of Lorraine, he will also become the Archbishop of Cologne at the same time. Don't worry, this will not be a boring biography episode of another <sighs> Archbishop of Cologne next time. But this concentration of ecclesiastical and secular power was to leave a lasting mark on Cologne for several centuries to come. So I'm looking forward to you tuning in again when we will be devoting ourselves to one of Cologne's most important medieval archbishops, Bruno I. Until then, thanks for listening and auf Wiedersehen.